Well, this week was kind of a traumatic week for your pastor. I have to share a story for you. This difficult week down in Museum Place at the office, if you know where we are located down there near the museum. The museum area down there and on our street in particular was overrun with seagulls. You know what those are, those rats that fly in the sky, right? Um, And it's hot right now, so I obviously have to have the windows open to survive while I study. And this week in particular, was, it was, they were just incredibly loud. They're always loud, but there was just something unique that, about what was going on there. There's just a ton of commotion. And I work in, a, in an office building of other people, and they go out for their smoke breaks and those things. And so I'm just hearing conversations and all that while I'm trying to study God's word, interrupting me. Um, and finally, I, 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 there's something, something unusual is happening because then I would hear shouts and I would hear things uh, going on. And I finally heard this. I heard this phrase, they're protecting the baby. So I went out there and looked and sure enough, up at the top of the roof is, is a, a baby seagull. And anyone that was walking down the street was being attacked by seagulls. <laughs> you guys, it was like Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds going on there. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. They were dive bombing people, poor innocent people going down on their phone, you know, like, and then, then one of the office people were like, watch out, what? Whoa, whoa, right? So I'm, I'm going, what are you, I'm so irritated, to be honest, about these seagulls. Well, by mid, mid of, mid day of Wednesday, uh, they were part of my entertainment at this point. To be honest, you guys, I was just, I, every time I heard noise, I get out there like, okay, who, who they get now? Like, oh, here comes this guy, watch, watch. Yeah, <laughs> because they were like, what's going on? And they just go running off, port like women coming down, you're just completely clueless. And all of us, I mean, there's an office building across the way. We all see each other and we all know what's going on. We're like, like, it's the funniest thing going on. No work got done in museum place. Let me just tell you, I mean, there's law offices and stuff. All those things were put on hold. The seagulls were our entertainment. That's what was happening uh, down, down there. Um, but then something happened on Thursday. That brought it to a, a halt. Actually, Ethan was at the office uh, at this time for me. In fact, I sent him into the city center to do an errand, um, and I was, uh, I was working. I heard, these, I heard the, the typical, run, you know, kind of noise going on down there. I'm like, ah, they're getting someone else. Who is it? And I looked up, and it was a guy getting into his car. It had a driving instructor kind of thing on there, and he was ducking as he was getting to his car. Um, and then a few seconds later, Ethan comes in, out of breath. He's like, oh, oh. Like, oh were they after you? He said, yeah, I'm walking down the street, and I look. And the baby was in the street. And I went, wait, if the baby's in the street, that means, oh, and he's like, <laughs> and so he came running in um, because they were coming after Ethan, too. Uh, so so he, he, he left for a second, and I was just, I was in the window watching, and a whole group of guys were outside watching as well, and the baby's just going up and down, and literally right in the middle of the street. Now, we usually get people just speeding down that, that street, you know, but this wasn't a speeder. This is a car was slowly moving and I could tell like oh the car oh but she's just going slowly probably you know looking for the dress totally didn't see it just crunch right over the baby seagull I did the same thing I was like all of us the guys down there all these big tough we're all, just completely flattened it as we were watching we could not believe it and completely clueless just kept on driving around and just disappeared now something interesting happened at that moment I started get, I got angry I got a little bit angry. Like, what? How, on, how dare you go take away our entertainment? I have been so, what on earth? 
I'm just kidding. I don't. I, I love animals. I just don't mind exercising my dominion over them. But I, I, I was a little irritated that that uh, that happened because you know it kind of was starting to get attached. Oh yeah, the the seagulls. What they had done is said, "This is our area, and we're protecting our own, the whole street, and anyone that would come in this area." We're, we're coming after you because we have babies. And that wasn't the only baby. There, there are a, a few others there. Um, but I started, I found out, I was like, I'm kind of angry. I want to go find that white car, right? And I want to go tell the driver, do you have any idea what you did, right? I just wanted to give him a piece of my mind. You just killed a defenseless baby. You had no idea. And that's what's interesting is that earlier in the week, I was, uh, I was angry at the seagulls. And our ha- anger, human anger, is very, is very fickle, isn't it? I mean, it could just be all over the place. Um, and the reason is it's a moral matter. You know, anger for us, it's a, a moral issue. It's an emotional response to a perceived wrong, if you want to define it some way, if you're writing down. It's an emotional response to a perceived wrong. And I say perceived because we have to make sure there's actually a wrong. <laughs> um, but what it does, it evaluates something or someone, and it finds it lacking. It finds it wrong. It finds it displeasing, and then it moves into action. This is wrong, and therefore I'm taking action. Um, With God, this emotional response is always righteous. With God, that emotional response, 100% of the time, is always righteous. When you read about the anger of God, always righteous. With man, (laughs) it's rarely righteous. 99.9999% of the time... Your anger is not righteous. For our anger to be righteous, it must fit three categories. I'm going to give these to you today because I want this this to be a very practical lesson today as we go through this passage. First of all, we have to have righteous desires at the heart of everything. Righteous desires. That means ultimately our ultimate goal out of being angry is that we're looking for the glory of God, not for the glory of self. My anger is justified if I really ultimately want the glory of God from it and not the glory of self. Secondly, once I evaluated the, 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 the issue or whatever it is, the person or the thing, my appraisal of that incident must be true. There must be a truly, a true wrong that has taken place. For example, Moses coming down the Mount from Mount Oreb with the, the, the 12, right? 10, 12, 15, how many? 10 commandments, right? And what does he do? What's he see? Idol worship going on, Right? golden calf. Now he's told that's going on. He goes down and he sees them. And is there a a wrong happening? Yes. There's idol worship happening. Um, uh, uh, an opposite of that is when the children of Israel, when they're, you know, dividing the land and all that. And, and one of them, the, the ones on the other side of the river set up a monument, right? A stone to remember everything by the other ones think they're, they're worshiping false idols. So let's go kill them. Right, And they come up and they, f- they find out that the opposite was true. Oh, actually, it's just a memorial stone. They're not worshiping false gods. He says, no, we set this thing up so that we'd be reminded to not worship false gods. You see what I'm saying? There's got to be, it's a perceived wrong. Is it really a wrong or is it just perceived that it's wrong? The third thing is, then you must act upon it in a righteous way. And a good example from that is in Numbers uh, chapter 25. You can turn there if you like to. But in Numbers chapter 25, Israel is in the Acacia Grove, and they're starting to, to commit, it says, harlotry with the women of Moab. And they're aligning themselves with false god worship, Baal of Peor. 
and a plague is, is God is sending a plague throughout the people. And it says this, now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, this is in verse seven, saw it, he rose from among the congregation, took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the, the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through her body, so the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. And those who died in the plague were 24,000. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, and this is the key, verse 11, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Phineas going and killing these two, God identifies that as God's zeal. Phineas was after the glory of God, right? And so that's how we have to look and evaluate our our anger. When my ultimate concern is self rather than God or others, then my my anger will express my selfish desires. That's what it's going to express rather than the glory of Christ and his kingdom. Now, what we come to today in John's account is, is uh, J- Jesus cleansing the temple. You guys have often heard of this, right? Jesus cleansing the temple in his anger. And, and people have tried to go, oh, see, look, he's just as sinful as any of, of the rest of us because Jesus got angry and God doesn't get angry. Oh, God gets angry. God does get angry. But in his anger, he's always righteous. And so what we're going to do today as we read this, we're going to evaluate Jesus' anger based on those three criteria. Did he have a righteous desire at heart? Ultimately, was for the glory of God. Was it truthfully evaluated? Was there a wrong that actually happened? And then he act righteously in those things. That's what we're going to look at. And this is in John chapter 2. If you've been with us, we've been slowly going through the book of John, the Gospel of John. Jesus has just done his first miracle in Cana, water, turning water into wine. Um, now, one thing to note as we go into this, just really quickly, um, John places this event, the cleansing of the temple, at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. But if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they place the cleansing of the temple at the end of Jesus' ministry, right after the triumphal entry. So the question is, uh, are there two cleansings of the temple, one at the beginning, one at the end, or was there one, and the writers just placed it at different places to uh, emphasize a certain aspect of Jesus' uh, ministry um, here? Well, John and the other gospel writers closely interweave uh, Jesus' cleansing of the temple with the chronology around it, um, both before and, and after. So it's difficult to remove the event and not harm the chronology. Um, in addition, there are several differences when you read uh, the different accounts. In the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, uh, Jesus is quoted as saying, as, as in quoting scripture, Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah seven eleven, and he quotes that as his authority, as the reason he's doing what he's doing. But in John, uh, Jesus doesn't quote any scripture. He just uses his own words. In John also, Jesus issues this remarkable challenge. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. We'll go over that in a minute. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't mention that challenge, but they do refer to it um, in the account of his trial by the Sanhedrin, and we'll look at that as well. So I just point that out because many believe, as do I, that there are actually two cleansings of the temple. One at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, as we see here in John, and then at the end of his ministry as recorded in the synoptics. Um, so let's start. Let's look into this. We're going to read the passage. We're going to look at verses 12 to 25. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. 
When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when, he, when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your word. Lord, we want to uh, see you anew and afresh today. God, I pray that you would just guide us into truth by your spirit. Um, Lord, we need your spirit's uh, illumination of the truth today. God, we just want to know you better so that we can glorify you more. So would you just be with us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, verse 12, it's just a transition verse, but it bears just uh, addressing briefly because it just makes uh, uh, the fact that's made more strongly in the other um, Gospels that Jesus moves his home base of ministry from Nazareth to Capernaum. So he's moving it um, away. In Matthew 4.13, we're told that he came and dwelt in Capernaum. So he's going to move and, 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 and stay there. It'll be his new base of operation. So that's what verse 12 is talking about when he goes down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and disciples because he's moved his base of operations. But let's look at verse 13. We'll start here. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We talked a bit about the Passover before um, in chapter one when John the Baptist pointed at Jesus said, behold, the Lamb of God. We did talk about it there. Um, but I do want to, to, to touch on it a little bit more here because the of how important the Passover was to the Jews. It commemorated the, um, really the Israel's deliverance uh, from bondage to, Israel, uh, to Egypt. The Lord killed all the firstborn of the Egyptians, but he passed over uh, the houses of the Israelites because they had covered the doorposts with the blood of a perfect lamb. That's where they got Passover from. Um, and Passover for the Jews was celebrated annually, 14th day of Nisan, which would be end of March, beginning of April, somewhere in there. And on that day, between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m., these lambs would be brought into the temple, they would be slaughtered, and the Passover meal would be eaten. Now, on the next day, the 15th day of Nisan, was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the Lord commanded that in Leviticus 23, saying that the seven days you must eat unleavened bread in recognition of this, uh, this feast. And on the next day, the 16th of Nisan, was the first fruits. And so the people would take a, a sheaf of barley, a brand new sheaf of ar barley, and they would wave it as um, an act, really an act of dedicating the harvest uh, to the Lord. So the Passover, really, to begin with, was an observance of these three. Really, it's just the two um, at this point. But the Passover on the 14th and the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the 15th and then the first fruits on the 16th. But it lasted a week because of that feast, the seven days they have to eat unleavened bread. So from the 14th to the 21st. And it says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus is going because he's commanded to. In Exodus chapter 23, uh, you can turn there briefly if you like uh, to. I'm going to show you there. But in Exodus chapter 23, verses 14 to 17, uh, this is where we read this. Three times you shall keep a feast to me 
in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded you at the time of appointed the month of the beeve. For in it you came out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. A beeve is Nisan as well. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year. So he's talking about all three feasts that take the whole year. Three times in a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. So Jesus, as a Jewish male is required to to go to these feasts. So he's being obedient to the the Father. And in the Gospel of John, this is the first Passover we come to. We're going to come to two more. In John chapter 6, verse 4, and chapter 11, verse 55, we'll see some other Passovers. But this is the first one. So he he goes up to the uh, Jerusalem. And I, I just point that out because last week we talked about how he was avoiding Jerusalem, right? Because he was, was not trying to, um, well, his hour had not yet come. But now he goes to Jerusalem and... He is there and look at verse 14. He found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Now they would have all these booths and all these tables set up uh, there to, to, to do this. And this was likely set up in the courtyard of the Gentiles. So if you've ever seen a picture or if you've been to Jerusalem, they have this amazing, amazing model that's massive. You could run around the thing that shows you what it would have looked like. But the courtyard is a gigantic area. It's where the Gentiles would be. And the, the main temple, the Gentiles could not go into. Uh, you had to be a, a Jewish person to go in uh, there. And so they were likely all set up outside in that Gentile area. It was the largest space that they had. Um, and if you were a Gentile proselyte, so you, you, were, you were converted to Judaism, that's where you were, you were shown this is your designated area for worship. This is where you worship. But there were those who sold oxen and sheep and doves there. Now, it did that because it was really hard for the pilgrim traveling a great distance to get to these feasts, to, to drag along, you know, an unwilling sheep or oxen, right? A lot of times that was difficult to do. So they, they really were doing this as a, a service of convenience. So they had the animals there that were needed for sacrifices, um, but they would have them at greatly inflated prices. And they'd also have to double check to make sure that was indeed a perfect lamb or whatever and, and unblemished. And so then they would trade one out and give you another one, but obviously for another price, and then probably sell that one to the next guy. Uh, but there were also money changers that were doing business. And the reason they had money changers there is because uh, of another commandment in Exodus chapter uh, 30. In Exodus chapter 30, uh, Jewish males, 20 years old uh, or over, had to come to the, the, the temple and pay an annual temple tax. So it went to the ministry of the, the temple and the Levites. So they would come and bring this temple tax, but they couldn't use, they couldn't use Roman currency for that. They had to use a Jewish uh, coin, a Tyrian, and it was a half shekel coin. Um, they made it out of a, a pure silver content as well. So they required that pure silver coin as the temple tax. But they had an incredibly um, a drastic rate of exchange on that. Uh, 12.5% some of those recorded. So they were making quite a bit of money for you to exchange for that half shekel coin that you were required by God's law to pay. So basically... Um, not a lot of great stuff happening in this courtyard of Gentiles. And this is what he sees. This is the scene that Jesus rides in on and sees. And so that's why we find what we find in verses 15 and 16. When he had made a whip of cords. I, I like that it says when he, when he had made one. I don't think Jesus just sat down and started a weaving, um, you know, uh, project. I think he probably uh, just used the cords that he took from the cords that were tying up the animals. Right? You put those together real quick and, whoop, voila, whip. All right? 
And it says he made a whip, of course, and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. This is quite a scene, and it's a large area. So for one man to do this, to, 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 to clear out that area, it's, that's, that's a pretty big deal. In addition, the Roman Antonia Fortress is higher and at a corner, and it looks into the, the, the Romans could look into the courtyard and see that. We have no evidence the Roman soldiers came pouring in there. It probably was just an entertaining show. Hey, come here. Look at this guy. One Jew is beating up another Jew with a whip. You know, they're probably just enjoying this scene. And I exaggerate there because nothing in here says that Jesus beat up anybody. It just says he drove them out. He drove them. Get out of here. He drove out the animals. Now, obviously, just by reading that much, you can see that Jesus was angry. Why was Jesus angry? Let's evaluate it by the standards we went over. But I want to give you two reasons here. First of all, this was God's house. This is God's house. And God is personally associated with his house, particularly the temple. And Jesus says that. He says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. The Jerusalem temple, remember this, was a, a symbol of, of Jewish national and religious identity. This is them. This was a symbol of God's presence, right, in the midst of the Jewish people. We are a favored people because this exists. And you were meant to go to God's temple, and you were meant to see an example of reverence for God and a worshipful atmosphere, but all that is gone. In its place is abusive commerce, religious profiteering. Even today, I don't like to see all the religious profiteering that's going on. It's all over the internet. You can buy holy oil, right? You can buy tribulation, uh, what do they call it, tribulation? Buckets? Yeah. Buckets? So that you can survive, the and they're, they're exorbitant costs. But people go, oh yeah, I need that. That's religious profiteering. It was going on in God's temple. Now I'm going to pull, bring out scripture that Jesus uses in the uh, second temple cleansing, uh, recorded by the synoptics, because I think it makes clear what, what Jesus is opposing. What he quotes is Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 9 to 11. I have it here for you. Um, he says this, Will you steal, murder, commit, adultery, Swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, house which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. Now, the part that Jesus quotes there is, uh, this place has become a den of thieves. But he's quoting this whole passage. And what's clear from this quote is God's association with his house. Because two times he says, in this house, which is called by my name. This is his house. It's his. God is holy and pure, and he cannot tolerate the consistent defilement of his house. And that's what had been happening there. And Jesus had a right to oppose that. Why does Jesus have a right to oppose that? He says it. It's my father. It's my father's house. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, he says this, All things have been, been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. He says, um, the, everything's been given to me by my Father. That's God. And no one knows him except me. 
And if no one knows the Father except Jesus, then Jesus is the only one that has the right and the authority to say, this is his house. I know what he wants in his house, right? You couldn't come, you couldn't come and tell my sons what I want or don't want in my house. They would know better what I want or want, don't want in my house, right? Blueberry muffins, bring them on. <laughs> Chocolate chip cookies, yes. Absolutely. Bring that stuff in there. I'll eat it. Except when I'm on a diet. Brussels sprouts? Sometimes. <laughs> Peas? No, keep those away. But Jesus knows what his father wants in his house. I think that's the first thing. The second thing, and maybe this is not as clear, but I wanted to show it to you, is that the actions that are taking place in that house do not line up with the vision that God had for his house. God had a vision for that temple, what he wanted to happen in that temple, and that's not what was happening in the temple. I'm going to take you back to 1 Kings chapter 8 to show you. Now, I know this is referring to King Solomon's temple, but this is God's heart for his temple. In 1 Kings chapter 8, beginning in verse 41, this is what is said here. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong arm, uh, sorry, strong hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this temple, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know, and this is key, that this temple which I have built is called by your holy name. The foreigners would come and know that this is God's house. Not talking about the Jewish people, foreigners, Gentiles. That was God's heart. That was his vision for this. But what the Jews had done, they had made the temple this nationalistic stronghold. This is ours. And I know Gentile worship is allowed because God has said it. So you can worship here. This is your area. And so what they should have done, though, they should have facilitated that, right? encourage that, giving them an opportunity to have a worshipful experience to God. But instead, they torpedoed it. They filled it with tables, right? And money changers. You didn't hear prayer. You didn't hear worship. You heard the bleeding of sheep and oxen. You heard money haggling going on. It was anything but worship. It was obstructed worship. And so they were flying in the face of what God envisioned for his house. This is not what I built it for. This is not what I want for it. And I'm sure the Jews, again, rationalized all this by telling themselves they were just providing this, this service. You know, they're making it accessible and convenient. But God's and, and Jesus' desire for the temple was for it to become a place of worship, not for Israel, just for Israel, but for all the people of all nations. Isaiah 56, verses 6 to 7, listen to this. Also, the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants... Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's what he wanted for his house. And that's not what was happening in his house. Now, I'm sure this question entered your mind. What were Jesus' disciples doing at this point, Right? kind of backing away to the shadows. I don't know about this. Or were they thinking what the other Jews were thinking? Only, only one who's absolutely committed to God's righteousness would be doing something like this. There's got to be some authority here. 
he has absolute righteous indignation. So what, what is it? Well, his disciples, it's, we're told in verse 17, remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. They're remembering Psalm 69, 9. David penned that messianic psalm. And like David, Jesus' zeal for pure worship was expressed in his concern for God's house. Do you remember David? I'll just read it to you. In 1 Samuel, you know, David, David and Goliath, right? You got Goliath out there, and he's um, barking insults to all the scared Israelites out there. He's saying, let's just end this war this way. Send out someone to fight me, right? But he's insulting Israel, and he's insulting uh, the God of Israel over and over again. And, and David hasn't been there, so he goes down, and, and this is what he sees. He sees this guy, and he gets angry about it. And this is what David says in verse 16 of 1 Samuel, uh, sorry, 1 Samuel 17, verse 26. Then David spoke to the men who stood by them, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who is this guy? He's, not, he's nobody. In fact, before that, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel. Now, Psalm 69.9, if you read the rest of that, that's exactly what he's talking about. This is, this is not okay. This makes me angry because he's defying the God of Israel. So I'm going to go take him out. <laughs> what do I get for that? <laughs> who's going who's gonna to reward me for that? That is the attitude of Jesus in terms of uh, protecting the house. He's protecting uh, the reputation of, of God. Is that a, a righteous thing? Yes, his motivation, his desires are righteous. Evaluating one, he's right on. He's concerned not for him, for God's glory. Now, in a way, Jesus is God, right? So he qualifies even more than that. But he's absolutely right. Was there wrong going on? Can we truthfully evaluate that wrong has been going? Yes, it doesn't fit the vision of, Jesus, of God, right? I built the temple so that people would come and experience God and see God. But they're not seeing God. Right? They're just seeing money being exchanged. They're not seeing God. How about his actions? Well, there we go. I don't know. I mean, Jesus did make a whip and drive people out. And stuff. I do want you to notice that he just drove the animals away, that people were chasing after them, so they got their animals back. He didn't destroy property. In fact, he just turned over money. People were, no doubt, on their hands and knees picking it up. And in verse 16, he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. He didn't set the doves free so they didn't get it back. You take them away. Now. <laughs> right? Take these things away. So Jesus didn't destroy property. He just cleared out his house. Now, if you brought a bunch of junk light out into my house, I might make a whip of cords and clear you out. I'd be careful not to beat you up in the process. So I think Jesus handled it actually rather well. To be honest, he cleared out his house. So naturally, they want a sign in verse 18. The Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? Obviously, this, is, this, this confrontation that's taking place is going to lead to more confrontation, either by the Romans or by the Jewish police. I think it's the Jewish police here because it says the Jews. Again, I think the Romans are probably just entertained by the whole thing. And what they're asking here is, it's, and not, they're not asking. This is, this is not a request. Okay, we're going to need to see some identification to make sure. This is a demand. You better give us a sign here. Something that proves you have authority. Because whose authority is he challenging? Theirs. They're the ones that said, yeah, this, this is okay. 
I want this happening in God's house. I want money changing going on. I want people getting ripped off. I want all this stuff going on. I don't want Gentile worshiping, worship happening here. The real worship's going on inside the temple where the Jewish people are, the true holy people. Listen, I'm not knocking the Jewish people, but that was their attitude. This was their symbol. They had held onto it for them. But God, God said, no, I'm supposed to dwell here. And, and people are supposed to experience God, not experience Judaism. Jesus came to refute Judaism, experience God. So it's not good that's what's happening there. And Jesus is challenging those who, who thought they had the authority to allow those things going on. And they want to see proof. What right do you have to do this? And here's what he answers. I love this. In verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, this phrase, like his parables, is a veiled statement, right? There's a truth in there, but they just don't understand what he's uh, talking about here. Um, interestingly, another, I think this is another supporting reason for the reason of, of two temple cleansings, because that, that phrase that's mentioned um, there is remembered by the authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they include it in the testimony of the false witnesses against Jesus. So when he's arrested, they want testimony. They want, they want witnesses to come and say, someone give me some evidence about Jesus. And I have, I have the two comments. Look at Matthew 26, 16, 61, that at least two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build in three days. Is that accurate? Did Jesus say, I am able to destroy the temple? No. He said, you destroy this temple, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up. So number one, they didn't even get it right. In the second one, in Mark chapter 14, verses 57 to 58, another a little bit twisted. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and with three days I will build another made without hands. Well, again, he didn't say, I will destroy this temple. He said, destroy this temple. Now, the reason I think these witnesses got it wrong is because Jesus did say something close to that, but it's been three years. Three years down the road, the second cleansing temple right happens, and then they arrest him, and he's on trial, and they go, yeah, that first time he said, I'm going to destroy the temple. He wants the temple destroyed. He wants to take around, uh, out our, our, our symbol of national pride. That's what he wants to do. Jesus didn't say that. He said, you destroy this temple. Jesus is prophesying. You are going to destroy this temple. We are going to do it. But we'll get to that in just a second, because they refute this in verse 20. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Now, remember, the temple of, of um, Jesus' day was not Solomon's temple. That was destroyed by the Babylonians. It was rebuilt after the exile by uh, Zerubbabel and some help there. But Herod the Great, Herod the Great actually began an extensive reconstruction and expansion, uh, expansion pro process going on with the temple and the Temple Mount area. In 20 BC, Josephus tells us that. And so that's what they're referring to. This has been 46 years of extensive uh, reconstruction work going on on the temple. We've been seeing that for 46 years. And you think you're going you're gonna to destroy it and just do it in three days. right? They, they, that's, they heard what they wanted to, to hear. They don't get the meaning. And the meaning is given to us in verse 21. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. He was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus knew he wasn't going to destroy that temple. He was going to they were going to destroy this temple. And the sign that he was going to give them was going to be the sign of his resurrection. And in Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 to 40, he says it this way. He answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So these guys want a sign. Later on, he says, there's no, no sign is going to be given except for the sign of Jonah. 
For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's the sign that Jesus is going to give, his own resurrection. But even his own disciples didn't immediately understand this, did they? If you look at verse 22, they needed the light of the uh, uh, resurrection. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, so when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So it wasn't until Jesus actually rose from the dead, the disciples looked back and said, oh, you know what? That's what Jesus meant. (laughs) Destroy this temple. They didn't even get it. It took the resurrection to illuminate that truth to them. So we look at Jesus' actions here in terms of righteous anger, righteous indignation. Jesus was well within the, the bounds of that. He was zealous with God's zeal, like Phineas. But he concludes this passage with these three verses, and I just find this fascinating, with a commentary on the hearts of men. Look what he says in verses 23 to 25. We'll read the whole bit there. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He's in Jerusalem. He's done some other signs and people believed in him. Now, the word believed there in verse 23, believed in his name, and the word commit in verse 24, that Jesus did not commit himself, are the same Greek word. Same Greek word. The idea is, they, though they believed in Jesus, Jesus did not believe in them. They, they had a very superficial faith, and he knew it. They were just about the signs. It was shallow. And the reason he knew it, because he knows the state of the hearts of men. He didn't, they, didn't believe, he, they didn't believe there, really, indeed. They believed signs, but they didn't really believe in him, and so he didn't believe in them. Because it says he knew all men. He knows what's in man. Why is this part included here? Well, I think that's why this is included. I'm going to tell you here. If the temple is destroyed, right? There's no temple. We've been talking about that in Revelation. The Jews today want to rebuild the temple. They're ready to rebuild it. They got all the stuff to go in it. They just need the temple. They want it built. But it's no longer built because it's no longer a symbol of God's presence. What is? You are. You are. We are. We are God's temple. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? People would come to God's temple in Jerusalem because they were supposed to see the presence of God, experience something of God. That temple is destroyed. We're the living temple of God. And people are supposed to experience something of the living God when they interact with his house. Sadly, I just don't think that's true today, by and large. If you ask non-believers to describe Christians to you, they're going to have two extremes. They're going to have this end with the guys with the pointy hats who are so holy and high above everyone else and have all this sort of religiosity about them, this facade of works. And you have the other end of people who are like, yeah, I'm a believer and do whatever I want. And they look no different at all. God's presence is supposed to be seen in his temple. So if that's the case, should we not have the same zeal 
that Jesus had for the purity of that physical temple, for the purity of our own? It's not there. It's, it's not there. God's presence is supposed to be seen in us, and we're given a very simple way in, this, in which that's supposed to be seen in Galatians chapter 5, if you'd like to turn there real briefly. I'm just going to end with this. But God's presence is supposed to be seen in us, and the way it's supposed to be seen in us, it's described as this, fruit. Fruit. In John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Right? Without me, you can do nothing. You have to be abiding in the vine or you have no fruit. In Galatians chapter 5, we have these, these two things. You have those who are walking by the flesh or walking by the spirit. And it says this in verse 16. I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. They battle one another. But look, what he, look at, they've got this crazy list in verses 19 through at 21. The works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are examples of the flesh. And I know some of those are like, well, yeah, I mean, gosh, you know, idolatry and sorcery. I mean, I, not involved there, but, but what about jealousies? Outbursts of wrath? Hatred? Because all of these things exist in the heart of man. All of these things. But we're supposed to show the fruit in verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, right? All the kids right now in Sunday school are studying the fruit of the Spirit. Did you know that? Probably saw some of the colorings last week. They, they have begun to study the fruit of the Spirit. I almost decided to take a break on John just to go through the Spirit because I, I think our church needs it. You get, at the point of salvation, this awesome bouquet. It is a bouquet of fruit. And you don't get one. You don't pick which ones. You get the fruit. You get the whole bouquet. You get love, you get joy, you get peace, you get patience, you, cut, you get all those things. But you're supposed to be zealous to maintain those things in the temple of God. God's presence must be seen in you. The people of the earth need to see, they're desperate to see God. And we're just, the, the, the truth is we're just not zealous to show it to them. We're not zealous for the purity of his house. And I think sometimes we think purity, we're, we're just thinking the extreme things. Well, I don't, I don't murder and I don't steal and I, I don't, you know, we have this little list of things. Well, what about that? What about that list of things? Are you defined uh, by jealousy? Are you defined by one who is angry, has outbursts of wrath? Are you defined by lewdness or uncleanness? Are those the things that you practice? Do you see fruit? Do you see fruit? We have to be zealous to make sure that this temple is absolutely pure and absolutely clean. I know what John does here is he sets up Jesus to say, listen, obviously he's the son of God because he's zealous for God's house. But to apply that for us today, I just want us to be just as zealous for God's house. And that's not this building. It's you. It's me. It's the church. 
We have to be so much about that. We understand the pardon part. We sang this in the song, pardon and sanctify me. We understand the pardon part. I just don't think we're so much interested in the sanctify me part. The sanctification is the ongoing, I'm just becoming more and more like Jesus. It's why I want us to study John and Revelation. I want us to see Jesus and walk with Jesus because that's what we need. We just need more Jesus. We spend more time with Jesus. We'll be more like Jesus. It's an amazing example here. After that event, we have this little three verses to say, but people believe, but they really didn't believe. It was shallow. Yeah, they might have followed him a bit. Yeah, they might have come to church once or twice on a Sunday. You know, they might come to these things, but they didn't really believe. I have a great fear, you guys. I really do. I have a fear. And I know we're not, not supposed to fear as Christians, but I do have a fear. I do have a fear that churches, not just in the UK, but all over the world, in America as well, are full, just full of people who are going to hell. People who don't know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. That's what is required. Because you know, how do I how do I have that zeal? How I can't put it in you. I can say try harder. Listen, you try harder, that's works. No one is telling you to work. You start going to works, you're in the wrong place to begin with. It's not about works. It's not work harder for salvation. Don't don't misquote me. I have not said that. You just need more Jesus. And what really what it is 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 as we relinquish our selfishness to him more and we get more and more of Jesus, he's really actually getting more and more of you, right? Because we hold on to me. I hold on to me because I just don't want me to go. But you know what has to happen for me to be sanctified? Me has to go. (laughs) Because there's in me not a lot of good. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live as Christ who lives in me. So I want to encourage you guys today Don't work harder. You don't have to do more. That's works-based. Let Jesus get more of you. It begins with abiding in the vine. Jesus, you're my vine. I need everything from you. Everything has to come from you. And then guess what's going to happen? You're going to be zealous for the things that your father is zealous for. Is God not your father? He's your father. He's zealous for the things that your father is zealous for. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the challenge that's in your word today, Lord. Certainly it was a challenge to me this week, studying it and preparing for it, God. I find so often my flesh wants to take over. Even twice just driving around this week getting honked at, the flesh pops up. My flesh wants to say, I deserve to live in a world where people don't honk at me because I'm so much greater than them. We do that. We're just so fickle, Lord. We're so in need of you. God, every day I just need more and more of you. Remove the things that are selfish in me. We have a dying and lost world that's supposed to experience you and to see you in us. And to do that, we just need more of you. May the fruit of your spirit be abundant in us. And may it point people to you. Thank you, Lord, for this time in your word. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.